Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Women Blazers. I'm your host, Deanna Witter. I'm excited to have Kimberly Davis as our featured guest for this episode. Kimberly serves as the Senior Executive Vice President for the National Hockey League. In this episode, Kimberly shares her incredible experiences and insights from her remarkable career journey. Kimberly had a fulfilled and successful career in the finance industry, working for J.P. Morgan Chase for over 20 years before transitioning down a path that launched an opportunity to join the NHL League office, where she is making a social impact and impacting the growth of the sport. Recognized as one of the most influential and powerful women in sports, Kimberly is one of the ultimate women blazers. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Turnkey ZRG, for supporting Women Blazers this season. Turnkey ZRG is a top talent search firm in sports, entertainment, music, and media. We appreciate Turnkey ZRG's role in advancing gender equity in our industry. I, I talk about the three P's all the time, preparation, passion, and purpose. Um, and that doesn't mean that every job or every career move you make is going to blend those three. But if you look over your career at some point and you haven't found the intersection of preparation, passion and purpose, then I say you probably need to do some introspection uh, because that's where your great joy and that's where your best performance is going to come when you're happy and you're joyous. So Kimberly, let's start out with your foundation of your education. You attended Spelman College, a historically black liberal arts college in Atlanta. Now, how did you make your college selection and what was the original vision for your career as you entered college? Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so um, so the Spelman selection actually goes, goes back in my family history. Um, my grandfather's uh, mother's sister uh, was in the first graduating class at Spelman when Spelman was a nurse's school uh, operating in the basement of Friendship uh, Baptist Church. And so I grew up um, seeing her picture and hearing the stories about her experience at Spelman. Um, both of my grandparents, my maternal grandparents are from Georgia, and so we spent a lot of time there. And uh, when I was five, my grandfather um, has pictures of me uh, running across Spelman's campus. So I guess as long as I can remember myself, I felt like I wanted to go to Spelman. Uh, and I ended up at Spelman, so that was great. And it was also fortuitous that uh, I was part of the centennial class of Spelman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that class was apparently um, very carefully selected because we were 1981, uh, 1881 to 1981. Uh, and so I felt very honored to be part of the centennial class of Spelman. Yeah, I mean, such a legacy to think about you know, your family's history with Spelman and be able to live that on um, in, in the work that you do as well. Um, let's talk about once you entered college, you know, what was that career thought? What was sort of the vision you had as you entered college for the career that you would lead? Yeah, when I entered college, my ambition was to uh, major in computer science. And in fact, um, initially declared computer science as my major. Um, 
and that was during a time in the late 70s when um, computer science majors uh, had, to, <laughs> had to basically learn operating systems like Cobalt, and it was all card readers, and you'd have to go to the computer center literally at midnight and 1 a.m. in the morning uh, and, and you know, do your programming and your card reading. And um, after a year of that, I realized that wasn't that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I did find interesting w was the analytical um, part of it. Uh, I'd always been good in math in high school. And, um, and so I pivoted my sophomore year to major in economics. Um, and that was, that really became my passion. I was very much interested in business. And so there was no business major per se at Spelman at that time. There is mm -hmm. now. And so economics was the closest that I could get to that. And that's what I majored in. Oh, that's incredible. After you graduated, you then launched your career in finance and in the finance and banking industry. To share with us how you then navigated out of college into your first career opportunity with J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, that actually wasn't my first career opportunity. My first oh. uh, career opportunity was with Aetna Life and Casualty in Hartford, Connecticut. Hmm. Um, and in fact, um, that that story really points to the importance, um, even way back then, of um, summer internships. Uh, I was my junior year. I was an intern. Um, with Aetna Life and Casualty in their Atlanta office. So I spent a summer working there. Um, and as a result of that internship, rising senior year, I was offered a full-time position. Um, and I joined Aetna in June of um, 1981 in their finance um, analyst program. Hmm. And, uh, and spent the first almost five years of my career in Hartford, Connecticut with Aetna, um, and then pivoted my career to join a, a bank called City Trust Bank that was ultimately acquired by Chase Manhattan Bank in 1991. And that's how I uh, transitioned uh, into JP Morgan that was ultimately acquired by Chase Manhattan <laughs> So during that period of, of the 80s and 90s uh, was a, a big period of, of merger and acquisition activity in financial services and investment banking. Uh, and so I really think I gained some pretty amazing skills as a result of having to navigate those different, um, those different you know, career challenges and opportunities over the course of that decade. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, you know, to your point, you know, you... Uh... You, you break into the industry, you know, you grow, you develop, you know, you get, a, you know, your, your last company, you get acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase, and that does have challenges. And, but for you, you know, you, you were able to continue um, on with J.P. Morgan Chase. You invested, what, the first, well, I guess, what, over 20 years with the organization, mm -hmm. and um, you, you grew up the ladder into very prominent senior roles, um, including the fact that the last seven years, you served as a managing director of Global Philanthropy. And, and you were the president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, which is just amazing. You know, what was your approach to growth um, and, and what were some of the key takeaways from the experiences gained and those challenges that were faced? Well, you know, looking back, because I don't think I necessarily understood 
uh, while I was going through it. And I was, I was a young professional. I was um, raising small kids. And so uh, in many ways, everything was a blur. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things that I, I now realize is um, that period of, of uh, merging and acquiring um, allowed me to do a couple of things. One was to understand how to operate um, in ambiguity mm -hmm. um, and to know how to, um, to pivot my career uh, because that's what was required. Every time there was uh, a, a, a merging of organizations, one had to determine, am I well positioned in this new organization? Am I part of the acquiring or the acquirer? And what are the implications of that? Are the people that have been my mentors and my sponsors um, still in positions of power to help support me? And if not, how do I build new relationships in this acquiring organization so that my career doesn't become stymied? Where am I in the organization in terms of parts of the business that allow me to be able to continue to have the visibility necessary for my career to grow? Those are all the questions that I think uh, I was answering and didn't realize I was, I was answering. Um, I was lucky enough to have uh, people watching out for my career. And I think that is just so critical for anyone particularly in those early growth years of your, of your career. Often when I talk to young people um, and I describe the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, I often simply say that a mentor uh, tells you and a sponsor sells you. Mm. And you need both, right? Yeah. You need people that tell you how to navigate your career and the ways in which you need to operate but you also need people in positions of power, people that can make things happen to sell you to their peers and sell you in parts of the organization that are going to matter to the ability of your career to prosper, flourish and grow. I mean, that was so well said. And I, I love the, the definitions of mentors and sponsors. And I love the way in which you navigated through the different transitions of your career, especially with J.P. Morgan chase and, and, and before in terms of those transitions and transactions. And I like how this fact that, you know, with change comes opportunity and that you always sort of saw that there was an opportunity there, um, which I thought was, which is also a, a great takeaway um, from, from your experience. Now, in 2013, um, you make a move. Um, you joined Taneo, a global CEO consulting firm. So what inspired this move in your career and, and how did you determine that it was the right next move for you after all that time spent with J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, you know, it was really those, those couple of decades of, of, of having been in almost every, every business and every division of J.P. Morgan um, and having uh, run the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation uh, during a period of, of great change and uncertainty across the country, really. Um, 2008, the economic downturn, um, J.P. Morgan having to um, prove to communities that it was both a global bank, but also a community bank at the same time, and the foundation playing a significant role in helping to position that. Um, 
I felt like I had pretty much done everything that I set out to do in my um, in my career at J.P. Morgan, um, and there was an opportunity for me to um, to retire, um, and to think about what the next phase of my career would be, and to the point of the importance of relationships um, and mentors. Uh, a dear mentor of mine told me about this consulting firm that was starting up and. They were interested in building a leadership and um, corporate social responsibility practice and ultimately had a conversation with the CEO of that company, the founder, uh, and he invited me to join. And that's how I ended up at Taneo. Oh, that's incredible. And while at Taneo, you built and ran the firm's corporate responsibility and inclusive leadership practices. You know, what were a few of the highlights from this incredible opportunity and experience for you? Well, I think the biggest highlight was having the opportunity to work with Billie Jean King and to build for Billy the first ever leadership, uh, women's leadership initiative, the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative, um, the first ever not-for-profit built in her name. Wow. He had founded the Women's Sports Foundation some years before, but that obviously didn't carry her name. But Billy was passionate about wanting to take her work uh, around gender equality and equal pay for women and to influence corporations and CEOs on why this was important for the future. And so we built it from scratch, um, working side by side with Billy and Alana, her partner, uh, and that leadership initiative has gone on to great heights and is doing amazing work in partnership with many corporations and many organizations. And that was a real highlight of my career at Taneo. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. So are you telling us that you have like Billie Jean King on like speed dial? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I actually do. <laughs> that is, that is, a, that is a, a nice boss move right there. I love it. After four years with Taneo, you know, you make this, you make another big move in your career and you join the National Hockey League, the NHL, and are named the Senior Vice President of Social Impact Growth and Legislative Affairs. You know, what was the initial experience like transitioning now into the sports industry, though, you know, obviously what you just shared with us, you, you started to really work in sports with Billie Jean King. So you, you probably had some nice transition there. Um, but what was that transition like? you know, going full into the sports industry and um, with the NHL league office. Yeah. So again, another uh, fortuitous opportunity. I was leading a project that Tanea was doing for the NHL. And as a result of that, I had um, the opportunity to present the findings of that report to Commissioner Gary Bettman. Um, and he and I got into, frankly, a bit of a debate <laughs> about some of the um, some of the recommendations that I was making, um, and I I wasn't sure at the time that he had ever had you know people that debated with him. You know, Gary is an amazingly brilliant, strong personality, um, and we 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 I you know grew up in an environment at J.P. Morgan, and clearly as a consultant at Taneo where debate was healthy. And so I felt comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, some months after that assignment was over, he called me and said that he was really sort of intrigued by those recommendations. He didn't necessarily like some of the things that I said, <laughs> but he respected it. And that was the beginning of 
uh, of a relationship with him that um, resulted in him inviting me to join the NHL in a newly created position that he and I co-crafted together, including the title of the position, cobbling some departments that existed at the NHL and creating some new ones like the legislative and policy and public policy um, area of my responsibility. And five years later, here I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who would have imagined uh, me in the sport of hockey, particularly uh, as, a, as a woman of color, um, given the, the profile and the demographics of hockey, but really, I think, doing some, some very, very important work um, that will extend the future of hockey uh, and help grow the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And did, were you, so you weren't a hockey fan before? Not really. Yeah. Um, you know, had, had had some experience with hockey uh, through through my son playing it uh, for a minute uh, when he was at an all boys private school. But I can't say that hockey was one of my my top sports, even though I grew up in a in a in a rabbit sports uh, yeah. household. Hockey was not really um, accessible. I would say, uh, in in my in my experience, um, growing up in Chicago in the '60s. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. And then, yeah, as I say, yeah, growing up for me, I'm from you know Flint, Detroit, and so Detroit Red Wings were were just massive and still are. Obviously, you know, um, growing up in hockey town, um, you know, hockey was a big part of my life growing up. And so, uh, um, rollerblades had just come out, so street hockey became very popular in my youth. Um, so we're a big big hockey fans in the early ages of my career. I remember my first starter jacket was the Red Wings. We are revitalizing street hockey in a, in a really innovative and um, I think uh, <laughs> relevant way for young people. So, uh, so I hope you'll find it interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, it, it, to your point, I mean, street hockey allows it to be more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's no different than, you know, in soccer, we have mini pitches, which are, you know, sort of refurbished basketball and tennis courts to turn into soccer fields, um, mini, mini soccer fields to make it more accessible as well, especially in inner city. So um, I applaud you on the on the opportunity. I look forward to, to seeing what happens next with the street hockey uh, movement. Now, the work you do, obviously, is extremely meaningful. And I love that you're so public about your work, um, the research, the progress and the goals of the NHL. Um, you know, what have been the wins from your perspective and what does success look like as you look forward to the future? I mean, I think the, the wins have been creating alignment around um, a process and a framework that all 32 of our clubs have bought into that really have to do with how we're going to move forward to grow the sport through inclusion. And, you know, often when people think about um, work and inclusion, they think about diversity and inclusion being synonymous. And I have been very clear with our leaders that there's a difference between diversity and inclusion. Diversity is about the numbers and inclusion is about the culture. And you can have all the numbers in the world, but if you don't have a culture that is accepting and welcoming and creates a sense of belonging, then those numbers are going to dwindle and you're not going to change the fabric of whatever the organization is that you're trying to change. 
And so we created this framework called the seven dimensions of excellence and inclusion that all 32 of our clubs across North America have bought into and customized it to their own particular marketplace. But that framework is enduring because it allows you to understand your demographics and understand your market and customize. So it starts with leadership. Everything begins with leadership. It then goes to education. If you don't have a fundamental and under, uh, understanding and baseline across the entire organization, you probably aren't going to pr progress the way you need to. Mm -hmm. um, employment, you can't say that you want to grow your sport from a fan base if representation doesn't exist in your front office, right? Mm -hmm. and so those seven dimensions, I think, have have created a business around inclusion that is very different than we're seeing in any other sport. And I think it's going to be the differentiator for hockey versus all the other major sports. Yeah, I mean, it sounds incredible. And I love the framework because when you have a framework, it allows, you know, naturally within the framework, um, it to come to life, you know, organically through the people. And I think that's really important. If you just set a foundation, I think that's different than a framework. Do you, mm -hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it can't build if people aren't always working on it. And I think that's the difference when I think about frameworks and foundations. And I, I love how you've, you've, you've built it. And I'm really curious to see how, it, to your point, just over the next years, um, how, it, how it shows up and how it differentiates the NHL from everybody else. And you mentioned something that I think is important um, is representation. And every episode, you know, I like to like tap back into themes of conversations I've had, you know, throughout this season and previous seasons. And so representation was one of the themes that I wanted to, to go a little deeper on with you um, as, as, a, as a black woman myself, you know, and, and having other conversations with, with women of color on this, on this platform is, you know, representation and that it just, in some ways it's a weight and in other ways it's a, it's a power to step into. And when I was doing my research on you, and like I said, I've been following your career for a while, you know, along your career journey, you know, you've been recognized as the first in so many roles um, that, that, not, that had yet to be served by women and women of color. And you've been recognized by prominent publications as Sports Illustrated, you know, as one of the most, uh, what, 100 influential Black women in sports, Adweek's 30 most powerful women in sports, Essence's you know, 28 most influential black women in America alongside first lady, Michelle Obama. Here's another name, you know, and, and the list just goes on and on. And I just was curious, you know, to, to ask you, and I've always wanted to ask you, you know, how important is it for you to lean into this representation and what's the meaning behind the power it provides all of us to step into? Well, look, it, it's, it's important because others are inspired by it. Um, and, and that's really the way I've always thought about um, any particular first that I've been um, lucky enough um, to, to, to represent. I, I've never gone after that. <laughs> I, I don't even think I've even realized it until someone pointed it out. Um, but I've always been um, courageous um, enough to go into spaces that um, maybe we haven't been in, knowing that somebody has to. My grandmother used to say, "If not you, then who?" Yeah, uh, and and so I'm just I'm humbled by the opportunity to have 
uh, trail, uh, blaze those trails. Um, and for me, I, it, I've always thought about what, how my daughter would feel about, about being able to look back and to say, my mom did that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that drove by my daughter and my son, not just because she's a woman, yeah. but also for, for men to see that and to change how they view society relative to women and the power of women to make change. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that. And especially when you think about your kids and, you know, even just the next generation in general and, you know, you know, to your point, I mean, it, it takes courage um, and somehow, you know, it feels like luck. I, we know it's not, but it feels like luck, you know, when you open a door and you get into a room that, that nobody like you have, has been in before um, you know, and what do you do? You know, that what responsibility that has for other people who look like you or may have come from a similar place that you had or had a similar story, you know, and just knowing that, you know, you in that room or you in this opportunity is inspiration to somebody else. And that just sort of motivates you to keep going. Um, but to your point, you know, in, in the terms of what you're humbled is that you don't even realize that it's happening, but, um, you know, as it comes at you, um, how you step into it and, and making sure that people, you know, you're not hiding from, it, but you, you let it be highlighted in a way so other people can see themselves in your work and in the spaces that you're in, which I think is incredible. You know, the next topic that, that I always love to tap into is lifestyle. And um, this is what I always talk about every episode since my episode one and season one is lifestyle. And um, one of the things as women that we often are asked is about work-life balance. And one of the things that we did on this podcast is we sort of threw out this, that concept of work-life balance is something we're not fans of anymore, but it's more about the fact that, you know, we as women in this industry, you know, we we're talking about lifestyle. Like we've created this lifestyle personalized to us and the people in our lives. And as you talk about, you know, being a mother, and, you know, sort of growing and developing through this career, how have you sort of personalized your lifestyle so it works for you, your family, and the people in your life? Well, I've always been clear um, from the very beginning of two things. Number one was that I was better uh, being a working mom. And and so I I can say honestly that uh, the, the guilt that uh, women often talk about feeling. Um, I never really felt guilty. I felt like I did some things that I could have done better. And there were moments and uh, that I felt like I didn't, I failed. Um, mm-hmm. But I never carried around this sense of guilt um, as a working mom because I felt like I was a better mother because I worked and I was satisfying that, that side of me. Yeah. Having said that, the second part was equally or more important than that. That was that family came first. I was always very focused on making sure that I provided my kids with the memories and the experiences so that they could look back, hopefully, as adults and to say there were these moments that we remember and they're part of our traditions of uh, of our of our growing up in our family that hopefully they are now carrying on for, for their kids. And in the case of my daughter, um, she has two little boys. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that the, my grandkids will be able to experience some of those same traditions. And what that means for a working mom is that, you know, you have to prioritize. And so when my kids were growing up, I didn't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, 
um, cultivating friendships. Um, I had lots of friends, but they all knew that my number one priority with the number of hours that I had in a day would be centered around my family. And so, you know, those true friends know that and they are going to be there for you 20 years later, 25 years <laughs> later. Um, and, and most of the friends that I've, that I have are friends that I've had for many, many years. And so, um, that shows, you know, how enduring those relationships were, but yeah, I, I just, um, have always been chilled about the, um, the balance thing and mm -hmm. knowing that balance comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's a uh, hundred zero, sometimes it's 50, 50, sometimes it's 20, 80, <laughs> you know, you have to go with the flow and, um, and that's, that's sort of how I've conducted my life. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And thank you for sharing. Now that your children are older, do you have new things you've replaced that time that you dedicated? Is it more time with friends or travel? Or is it, is it still like the 80, 20, 40, 60, depending on the prioritizations of today? Well, for sure, there's more time for, for friends. And yes, a lot of, a lot of travel. Uh, with friends and enjoying friends and we are now at the age where uh, people are retired and so we just have more time but also spending those moments with with my grandchildren um, and I enjoy home you know mm -hmm. I'm on the road all the time uh, for work and and so I love home and um, I love to cook and um, I love to entertain and so those are the things that bring me joy that's fantastic. Well, I hope, you know, this holiday season, you get to get some time with your family and, and hopefully it's at home where you, where you most enjoy your time. Now to, to um, close things up here, I always love to end with a bit of advice and um, would like to ask, you know, what advice that you have for women looking to grow their careers in areas of this industry where women are generally underrepresented? One is, um, don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> I, I think, That's hard. <laughs> uh, well, it, 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 it is hard, but it isn't because um, if you if you stay focused on the things that you're passionate about and you are clear about your purpose, um, let your preparation be your guide. I talk about the three P's all the time, preparation, passion and purpose. Um, and that doesn't mean that every job or every career move you make is going to blend those three. But if you look over your career at some point and you haven't found the intersection of preparation, passion, and purpose, then I say you probably need to do some introspection uh, because that's where your great joy and that's where your best performance is going to come when you're happy and you're joyous. Um, and I know that that has been um, true in my career. Um, make sure that you continue to take care of me, uh, me Inc. I call it, you know, you, you, you know, market yourself to yourself as a brand, um, and be thinking all the time about managing your own career. It's up to each of us to manage our careers, um, and to stay focused on those things that are going to help, um, do that. And, and so, um. All the other things come when you are willing to be courageous, um, step into spaces that um, we typically don't uh, operate in, uh, be authentic. Um, and, and I find if you blend those elements, everything else works out. Yes, they do.
Thank you, Kimberly, for your time, sharing your story with us today, and for the incredible words of inspiration and advice. Um, and it's been just a pleasure to, to finally have this engagement with you. And uh, I look forward to staying connected. Thank you again for being uh, a guest on Women Blazers. Thank you, Deanna. I so appreciate uh, your interest in speaking with me. And that's a wrap on episode 59. Thank you to Kimberly for sharing her journey and insights with all of us today. And as a thank you to Kimberly, our friends at Turnkey ZRG has purchased a one-year membership for her to join the Pro Sports Assembly, an industry member-led association helping advance equity in pro sports. Now, to stay connected and engaged with the Women Blazers community, I always invite you to follow us on Instagram at Women Blazers. Now, we only have one more episode left in season three. So look forward to episode 60 featuring Kim Stone, president of UBS Arena on Monday, January 9th. Until next time, have a wonderful week.